Good morning. Well, let me add my welcome to you. I'm Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're looking at the question, a question of identity. This question, who am I? I realize that it's somewhat uh, funny to hear a talk on this from uh, a guy from Scotland who looks Chinese and um, who's in uh, Vancouver in Canada. But let's do this. It's a question um, that is all around us, actually, not just with me, if you keep an ear out. It's the question of a Welsh guy I met at a rehab centre uh, who was asking this question. He had realised he had struggled with who am I all his life because his mum was a prostitute and he had never known his dad. It's a question a half Chinese, half South African boy who I met at an orphanage in Johannesburg was asking when he held tightly to me and asked, do all Chinese people wear glasses? Do all Chinese people do Kung Fu? He kept asking me because I guess it looked like I might know and no one else there did. It's the question Jesus actually is being asked in our passage as well and the temptation that he's confronted with. Who are you, really? I'll be looking at the first temptation uh, today and others will be looking at the next two in subsequent weeks. So we're going to look today at how Jesus responds to the temptation concerning his identity and then after that, we look at our own identity and how we are supposed to respond. So looking at Jesus and how he responds to temptation concerning his identity, and then looking at our own identity. So why don't I pray for us as we begin? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Would you speak by your spirit of your son for your glory? that what's of me would fall uh, to the side and, uh, and dissipate and be lost, but what is of you would be um, what remains, which grows, which flourishes, which bolsters something in us that goes beyond ourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, firstly, let's look at Jesus' identity. In verse 1, we are told that Jesus returns from the Jordan. We looked at what happened there a couple of weeks ago. Jesus Christ was baptized, and as he was, the, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and a voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Curtains open on reality, on divinity, on trinity. Luke, the writer of this account of Jesus, is writing an orderly account. He's connecting um, our passage today with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan about identity to the family tree of Jesus, which we looked at last week, was also about identity. It was an identity that came before activity, even before he had begun his ministry, we were told earlier. And we have this episode before his ministry begins that shed, sheds light on, on who Jesus is and what his ministry is going to be like. He's going to announce that soon, but this is the last episode before he does that. There are echoes of Adam and Eve here, in the garden, you'll see that, with the devil whispering plausible distortions about God. And there are also echoes of Israel in the wilderness. Israel was rescued from Egypt through the Red Sea, with God calling Israel his firstborn. Note, uh, then comes the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Note the number. Here, Israel constantly complained about food, especially succumbed to idols and tested God there. So we have a contrast as Jesus steps up. But it's deeper than a contrast, though. It's a fulfillment. 
Jesus comes through the waters of baptism as God's one-of-a-kind beloved son. And now he's in the wilderness, 40 days without food. What's the beloved son of God going to do? What kind of son of God is he going to be? This is the temptation of identity. And these are the temptations asking, who are you, Jesus? And so he is tested. With all these things being highlighted about Jesus' identity, we suddenly sense the the music kind of getting tense here. The test comes. The wilderness and the hunger are just the setting because the major confrontation and challenge uh, comes, and it's from the devil. We know it's not the red-horned devil with a tail and pitchfork that we see in cartoons, but there's lots that we don't know. It's just assumed that there's a literal and personal being involved here. It's stark and and more than a little jarring for, for us today, but we're just not given much more. I picture the disciples being at a fireside with Jesus with some s'mores perhaps one evening and asking for advice about temptation and their own struggles. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, don't you ever get tempted? I imagine Jesus telling this story, sharing this story, and the disciples having so many questions afterwards that they actually never get to the one about what form the devil took here. There's too much in this story that they never even get to that point. What we do know is that Jesus is being tempted by the devil, whether it took place internally or externally. We are told here that he was tempted, and the Greek word here can be used both positively and negatively. So positively, someone can be put to the test and the true character is revealed. Or negatively, it can be used to mean that someone is enticing someone to do something dark. It's a temptation to pursue an evil way. And so just be aware that there is that, um, that there are both sides of the coin here in relation to Jesus. Being tempted by the devil here is not Um, intrinsically bad. To be tempted is not sinful. I think it's Luther that says it's not a sin to let the birds fly around at your head, but it's a sin to let it build a nest in your hair. I don't know what kind of hair Luther had. Um, I think he was bald, actually. So so anyway, um, (laughs) temptation itself is not wrong. It's what comes out of the test and the temptation that's going to be important. Is it going to be a temptation that, that, that tempts and entices the evil? Or is it a test that forges something better? You see, this is a temptation that strikes identity. Lots of temptations are. Identity is going to be forged or or forgotten in adversity. And here is that dramatic tension that's going on in our passage. That's the question here. Notice that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil all that time. Like I quite twigged that before um, spending time in it this, this, uh, this week. It's temptation for 40 days. And then after the 40 days of temptations come the next three temptations. I would be more than a little hungry by that point, more than a little hangry, we could say. There is a spiritual battle going on here. The scene is set. It's spiritual. It's intense. The devil says, if you are the son of God. Remember, Jesus has only heard, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And now he hears, if 
you are the son of God. Doubts are sown, accusations are made, daggers are thrown. Devil here means is diabolos in the original, which means slander, slanderer, the false accuser. The overarching question of the temptation is, are you really the beloved son of God? What kind of son of God are you really? Who are you? Is your identity as um, beloved son of God going to be forgotten or forged in the wilderness? In the adversity of the wilderness? In the privacy of the wilderness? In the infancy of your ministry? What are you going to be? Who are you going to be, Jesus? What son, what kind of Messiah are you going to be? If you're the son of God, questioning his divine identity. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread, questioning his divine humility in becoming human. Command this stone to become bread. Do it for yourself, Jesus. You deserve it. You're the son of God. You owe it to yourself. A real son of God wouldn't go hungry like this. Satan shows what kind of Messiah he would choose to be here, what he would be. And the other temptations he does so too. He clicks his fingers for food. He teleports himself from one place to the other. He has an HD television personal cinema room there. He base jumps off high places. Sounds similar to how I would do it, which is more than a little worrying. But Jesus, Jesus is different. Something has been forged in him in the wilderness, in those 40 days, in his life, in adversity. He has forged and has forged in him his identity as beloved son. He has not forgotten it. He steps into it. And so Jesus responds. He doesn't enter into discussion with the tempter. He responds to the false accuser with the truth of Scripture. It is written. He says that every time. This will be expanded on, I'm sure, in the next few weeks. But for now, he notice that he, he quotes Deuteronomy in all his responses. When Israel was in the wilderness on the cusp of crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, this is where the book Deuteronomy is set. And here's Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 5. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness those 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. This passage then links Israel's wilderness to God's humbling, God's provision, and the constant challenge uh, to trust him. The Israelites were given manna, aren't they? But they needed and struggled to each day to, to trust. To trust as a father disciplines a son. That he does that with those he loves. That these tests are to produce something good, something refined. And so Jesus is taking that place. He's being asked this question, who are you really, Jesus? And he answers by answering this uh, with this quote from Deuteronomy. He's saying, I'm the beloved son of a father who provides, cares, sustains, and disciplines. 
who feeds me beyond bread and manna. They were for their physical body, but they needed more than that, the Israelites. It takes more than bread to really live. It takes a word, every word that comes from outside of me, from a good father to give me identity, purpose, and a path to truly live. It might look like I'm done here, Satan. I'm broken, I'm starving, I can barely stand up, but I'm secure. My identity is not based on my circumstance, not on the fullness of my tummy, but on the fullness of the Spirit and on the Father who says that I am His. Who am I? I know my identity as divine Son, and I've come in humility to save the lost, to seek and save the lost, not to make bread for myself, but to be bread of life for others, not to be served, but to serve, not to indulge in cheap stunts or spectacular miracles or indulgent trivialities, but to die unspectacularly, shamefully, to give others life. To hunger now, to hunger like I've never hungered before, so that all who are poor would eventually get to truly feast. I see the kind of sonship you're laying in front of me, devil, and I see through it. It's satanic, it's self-centered, it's spectacular, and it's superficial. It's easy, but Jesus says, I've not come for the easy. So something is forged here in Jesus. He is tempted by the devil to forget his identity, but instead identity is forged in him in adversity. So the question for us comes, if identity can be forged or forgotten in adversity, then what does that mean for us? Who are you? Who am I? It's still the question that my little boy in kindergarten is asking as he interacts with different groups at school. It's in the world of, of film, a deep intellectual film that has stood the test of time, The Lion King. Seriously, it's the story of a young lion, isn't it, whose destiny was to become king and his journey of finding himself. What's the turning point in the film? When he looks at his reflection in some water after years of running away from being the next king, he asks, who am I? And only gets courage to fulfill his destiny when he remembers who he is, the son of the king. Only then does he get the strength to defeat his enemies to be who he was born to be, and to begin to sing Elton John songs. <laughs> who am I? Is our identity to be something that we discover by detaching ourselves or deconstructing everything or something that we just decide or that we earn? Or is it finding an anchor, something bigger than ourselves that brings us in? Something that we can attach to that calls us by name, who calls us by name, whose word is, is, is more important than the bread that we need to live physically. Alistair preached powerfully on identity a couple of weeks ago. He says the question is not only who am I, but whose am I? Who are you? Whose are you? When you look into the pools of water like Simba did? Who reminds you of who you are? Who speaks to you like Rafiki, telling you about your past and inspiring you about uh, your destiny? We are to hear the voice of the Father say to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I know that as the Father has loved Jesus, so he loves us. 
We are made to find identity in God's love and as his beloved children, sons and daughters with whom he is well pleased. That's supposed to be our identity. But we know, don't we, that there are many tests in wilderness from the world, the flesh, the devil, and adversity when things are going wrong and hard, and privacy when no one's looking. While identity can be forged in the wilderness, we're aware that actually it can be forgotten there too. There's always a voice. Who in the world cares for you? Who do you think that you are, that you deserve care and attention? You need to protect yourself. You need to fend for yourself. No one's really going to look out for you. You're by yourself. Forge your own way. Forage what you need. You need to carve out your identity so that you can actually be worth missing when you're gone. So what functionally is, is your identity in adversity and in, in privacy? Who are you? Whose are you? Functionally means not just what it says on your screensaver or on your bumper sticker, but in the browsing history of your browser. It's not what you say to the person at a party when we used to go to parties, um, when you meet them for the first time, but what you say to yourself all the time. Not the profile picture that you put on social media, but what you see when you look in the heart of your mirror. What functionally is, is your identity? You see, you can hear from me that you are, that you can be a child of God. You can even hear it from God, no less, but not have it resonate in your heart. That's when you know that you have another functional identity. In the wilderness, your true identity can be forgotten. What is your functional identity? What does it lead you to be? Where is it going to lead you to end up? What is being forged in the wilderness right now? Who am I? I've realized that it's been a pursuit that has shaped much of my own life. As a Chinese-looking Scottish guy or a Scottish-sounding Chinese guy, you decide. That was the tension. I was trying to figure that out. Who was I? Much of my teens and 20s were unpicking this, unpacking this. I was asking whether my identity was in my ethnicity or in my nationality, but focusing on these meant that I was not comfortable in my own skin. Resentment, insecurity was being forged in me. What is being forged in you? Who are you functionally? Who, whose are you? There are several options, I think, for, for answering this. One is to reject God's promise and to, and to do it our own way. One option is to do that. Thanks, but no thanks, God, I've got this. I heard a while ago a talk on the three lies of identity, and it stuck with me. Three lies of identity. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what other people think of me. Choose your poison. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people think of me. Because whichever one of these you choose, deliberately or by default, you have decided that that thing will be the thing that eventually destroys you. You are, you're made to have identity in Jesus Christ and not anything else. Fame, money cannot give you identity. Safety, control, and power cannot give you security. Family, a spouse, career cannot give meaning in and of itself. Wherever you pin all of your identity will ruthlessly demand your life 
but ultimately leave you destitute and empty-handed if that is the sole purpose of what goes on in your life, if that is your ultimate identity. I think of Willie Loman from my high school English class and the death of a salesman with identity in what he did, what others thought, until he was no longer able to sell. He was tossed out like an orange peel at the end of his career. He thought he had everything, but he actually had nothing. I think of Arthur Miller, the playwright who wrote that play, and one of his wives, Marilyn Monroe, who died of an overdose months after they got divorced. We need to be more than careful where we find our identity. But it doesn't only happen when we openly choose not to accept that identity that God wants to bestow on us as his children. We can, um, we can deliberately reject it, but we can kind of subconsciously reject it as well. We can subconsciously find identity in other things. This is when we make good things ultimate things, when good things become God things, when good things become identity-shaping things. We see this in our passage, actually. Jesus is tempted with what? Not a chocolate fondue or a deep-fried Mars bar that are kind of famous from Glasgow, my hometown, or even a deep-fried pizza and battered pizza, which you can get. It's not indulgence or decadence, is it? But bread. Something good. Sorry, folks um, who are doing keto or, or on a low-carb diet. Um, Jesus wasn't on that, I'm afraid. But bread was a good thing. It is a good thing especially if you've not eaten for 40 days, especially if you're fasting for 40 days, and actually, the 40 days are over. Did you notice? The 40 days, the fast is, is done. He could do this. It wouldn't have been, in my own eyes, like that bad. Can you actually see that the devil is working hard to help Jesus not suffer as well? The devil is taking a good thing and making it ultimate. He's questioning Jesus' identity. Would the beloved son really be this hungry? Should the beloved son of God really have to suffer like this? So what's going on? Remember, Satan is saying, if you're the son of God, he's questioning divine identity. And he's saying, command this stone to become bread. He's questioning his divinely human humility. Jesus was not willing to take a, a good thing and allow it to be an ultimate thing not willing to allow it to shape his identity or affect his humility. Bread was not wrong, but it was a good thing. It was just in the wrong way. This way of getting bread, spectacular, superhuman, and crucially self-centered, was not the way that he was to go. Notice, too, that um, it was a good thing, but just at the wrong time. Do you see that? It's at the wrong time because Jesus literally does it later on. Can you remember? He does it twice that we know of. He feeds the thousands with loaves and the bread from a couple of loaves and a few bits of, bread, uh, um, of fish. So it definitely wasn't bad in itself. It just wasn't at the right time. It wasn't the right way. And so isn't that the temptation often for, for us to find our God-given identity in God's ignoring ways? To pursue the goodness of a God-given identity but with with God, without God-given timings? Wanting the gifts of the giver, but rejecting the way and the timing of the giver. The Israelites wanted the promised land, but wanted it yesterday. I want to be transformed, but I don't want the time it takes for transformation. I want to be like Christ, but I don't want to take the upside-down way of humility, or to wash feet, or to fast from the things that I want. 
So what do you want that is good because it's a promise of God, but the way that you're seeking it or the timing or the pace is godless, has subtracted God, has lessened God. What are we to do then? How are, are we to respond? What will we do in the privacy and adversity of wilderness right now? Will this become a temptation to evil or a test to good? What about your true identity will be forged or, or forgotten here? Well, let me say first that there's lots to learn from, from Jesus here. His response is exemplary, obviously. Jesus forgoes the easy way for us so that the easy way is no longer the only way for us to go. The, the natural way is not the only way for us to go. But my main application is not this. Be strong, endure it, be like Jesus. It's good advice, but not the prim primary or the initial advice. You see, if Jesus here is only our example, then on good days, that's really inspiring. On bad days, it's really crushing. You see, if Jesus is only our example, that's going to be a burden that's too big for us to bear. We can't act like him ultimately. He forges this way as the, the unique, beloved son of God. We fail. We mess up. We forget. The song we're going to sing after has these words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. The good news is that Jesus is not primarily our example. He's our substitute and our Savior. He's the one who holds us fast, and we trust in him. He says to us in a passage like this, can you tell it gets me? He says, he doesn't say do this, but he says, I've done this. I've done this for you. And so we need to see that as he went through the temptation, the wilderness, the adversity, all this with the devil, he does that for you, he does that for me. And so the wonder is this, as you put your faith in Jesus, what is true of Jesus is now true for you. In becoming human and not just God, but God-man, he is now able to be our substitute because he is able to represent us in every way. And he even goes through hunger for us. Did you notice? When the 40 days were ended, he was hungry. Why is Luke being Captain Obvious? He became human for you, for me. Gaunt, grey, dishevelled, not superhuman, not a man of steel, tempted in his human nature to fully represent, substitute and fully save you and to save me. So this is what he 
what he walks through on behalf of us. And this is what we can walk in because he has walked it for us. His baptism, hearing the delighted voice of the Father, the affirmation and love from above, the sinless life, it's now ours. This is what it means to be united to him. He is the perfect human, the faithful son, the second Adam, the fulfillment of Israel. He goes into wilderness for you and for me, and he does it out of love. He passed the test where others failed so that we would know our identity was not dependent on how much we pass the tests. I love that we're doing live stream, but um, in some ways I wish I could stop it for a bit and kind of go back a bit, right? Just take that bit out where I was crying. But that's okay. This is what it's about. This is real. Let me finish with this. Um, with this um, illustration. I wonder if you've ever sat in an exam when the test um, is in front of you. Your pen is ready. The keen ones have several pens, of course, don't they? You remember those. I always found those guys kind of annoying. You watch the clock moving towards uh, the start time. You think that the course of your life is going to be determined by how you answer the questions on this test. It usually isn't actually that much riding on it, but you feel like it is. But today it really is. The pressure, the burden, the sweaty palms. Do I have enough water? Where is the washroom? What if you turned over that paper and you realized that the answers were already written down? Your name was there on the second page, but the answers were already there. They seem correct, as far as you know, the little study that you've done. In fact, the answers are so good that you start reading them and learning from them, kind of being riveted by them. What if that's what it's like for us now, that all these tests that we experience now, these temptations, this trial, this adversity, this wilderness, are invitations to us to, to enter into an exam that has already been passed for us, where the answers are, where the test of temptations are done. The test is not to pass or fail. You've passed with flying colors, but to practice in the ways and the answers of Jesus, to doodle in the margins. You've got three hours, so doodle in the margins. Personalize the answers for yourself. Add little bits that, that are relevant to your life and how you're to live. To put your own flourish on this page. The answers are there already. It's been done. In the wilderness, we are not to harden our hearts and forget like, Jesus, like um, Israel did in the wilderness, but to listen to his voice, to open our hearts and hands and to allow his identity to be forged in us. And so I think it means for us dwelling in the presence of the one who says, you are my child. To be able to hear that enough that it begins to, to change us. To have space enough in ourselves, enough stillness to have that forged in us. You are my beloved child. Nothing else matters. My words are the bread you need to live. Who am I? I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How are you going to answer, who am I? Would you be grounded in this identity as God's child, tethered and anchored and rooted to God's love, held fast by the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, who represents us and in whose stead you stand? Let that be your identity today and all your days.